Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts podcast, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given to you by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Sarah Aird. Sarah is a complex PTSD survivor with over 15 years of professional research around complex trauma, family dynamics, generational trauma, somatic healing, relational healing, and internal family systems. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. I gave a, a bit of a brief introduction, but you have quite a story and I didn't want to take anything from that. So if you could please uh, share some background about yourself and your story and how you got to who and why you are today. Yeah. Um, so I, I think from where I am today, I say I'm a complex trauma, complex PTSD survivor you know, in the healing process for over 15 years. But when I started, um, I didn't really know what was going on or what was happening to me. I think um, for me, and maybe something that I hear for survivors is like there was one moment in time where things kind of started to break down in my life. Um, for me in particular, that was when I got married. I think the vulnerability and intimacy of that relationship started to bring certain um, things I'd experienced in my past kind of to life in the present. Um, but at the time, I just didn't really understand what was happening to me, um, why I was struggling um, so severely, I think with like depression, anxiety, um, emotional flashbacks, but that, like, I don't have words for any of that back then. I just know that things are, are really difficult and it takes me, um, like a solid seven to eight years to really figure out and understand that what I'm living with and, and what's coming up for me are the impacts of complex trauma. It takes me a really long time to find those words, like what this is. Um, and then even, you know, another several years to find the tools and resources that will, that will work for me, that will start to help me find relief um, in my life and, and changes that I want to experience. I think um, as I as I got tapped into trauma informed um, support uh, and relationships, um, I started to experience hope, which was uh, I think throughout my life in short supply. Like um, I think it was hard to imagine like life could get better. And so as I started to feel like things were changing and, and shifting for me, um, throughout that process, I wanted to find ways to give back. I, I'd, I'd received so much um, support from other people, um, 
in Healy and I wanted to find a way to um, share like what it was I was discovering with other complex trauma survivors. Um, eventually that led me to Instagram <laughs> uh, where I started my account um, breaking down CPTSD. And honestly, that kind of took on a life of its own. <laughs> I didn't really have like ambitions or ideas about like where that was going to go when I started. I really just wanted to maybe my kind of working idea was like, I wonder what, you know, what it could be like to create like a hub or a place where like there were a variety of tools and modalities and education and community that people could access to find what works for them. And then it kind of, like I said, snowballed into <laughs> um, something bigger than I anticipated. Um, I, I, I guess, Today, I would call myself an advocate, but I guess I didn't start out like, I want to be an advocate. <laughs> I think that just kind of happened. Um, yeah, so today, um, you know, like I, what kind of drives my platform and like what's important to me is um, putting information and education in the hands of complex trauma survivors to help them find what it is that that will work for them. I think the complex trauma recovery process is so personal um, and we all need different things. We all need um, maybe what I would say is like a tailored recovery. And so maybe what the mission of breaking down CPTSD is, is like that education along with empowering survivors to kind of be the experts on their complex trauma recovery journey um, that often like if they can enter spaces where um, they the survivor can drive the goals and learn to trust themselves there's a lot of healing um, in that experience at least there has been for me so that's kind of it's it's the story in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And and there's so much um, more information on your website. I felt like I was reading for days, but it was really, really, really good and healing. And whenever I've heard lately that vulnerability begets vulnerability, right? So when someone mm -hmm. is willing to share their story, others hear it and then they relate to it and then they're willing to be open more. So you're doing a really, really, really good job at helping others and providing tools and so much information that allows for healing. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for what you do. Yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. I, I would agree that like there's something powerful in the vulnerableness of like me too, of sharing stories together. Mm -hmm. For sure. Okay. So someone may hear CPTSD, right? And say, oh, well, you know, that's for people who were in a war or people who, mm -hmm. you know, were in severe tragedies, earthquakes and things like that, right? But a lot of times it can be so much less than that and so much more even within the concept of, of what it is, right? So my first question to you would be, what is CPTSD? Yeah, so I think, right, like, that introduction is 
is really useful in that when when people tend to hear like PTSD, whether that C is on there or not, is like maybe what they tend to think about is what's called shock traumas. So like these one-time big events, right, that have really deep impacts on people. Um, those shock traumas tend to have like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, so if we look at like PTSD-related symptoms, um, there is like, uh, you know, trauma trigger avoidance, flashbacks, um, those types of things going on. So like, then what what is complex PTSD if it's a little bit different? And typically, if we look at like shock trauma as a one-time event, we could look at complex PTSD or complex trauma as like a string of events, right? Or a string of experiences that could have um, roots in, in lots of different traumas, like um, emotional trauma, relational trauma, childhood trauma, um, systematic trauma in the form of like racism, um, homophobia, things like that. But it tends to be, right, rather than a one-time thing, like um, many things over a long period of time. Often complex trauma survivors, including myself, would say like, it's hard to know a life before the trauma. Like there, there doesn't feel like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It just feel like it's it's kind of always been there. Um, yeah, and so maybe that's the, the word complex speaks to that, how it tends to be quite layered, right? Repeated, chronic, um, and, and complex PTSD or complex trauma could include shock traumas, one-time big events that had really deep impacts. It could also be, um, I don't want to use the word smaller because I don't want to minimize, but maybe like day-to-day -day events, day-to-day -day emotional and relational events, right, that maybe are more difficult to identify as a trauma because they feel like the norm, the ordinary kind of parts of the day. What would be some symptoms that um, someone could identify with CPTSD that would allow them to stop and say, okay, maybe this is something that I struggle with that I wasn't aware of? Um, I think it looks a little bit different for everybody, but I would say maybe some of the common ones are dissociation, um, like interpersonal or relational difficulties, um, emotional dysregulation. So like that could look like difficulty naming your emotions, identifying them, feeling like you have emotions, right? When you do feel those emotions, they feel out of control or it's hard to write, feel like there's a way to con to respond or cont contain them. Um, internalized shame, which is mm -hmm. often experienced as like this really loud, harsh inner critic. Um, and then there might be what we would call like survival habits. So ways that we're coping with um, the trauma in our day-to-day -day life, but also might bring their own forms of suffering or harm. Um, that can look like anything from like people-pleasing, perfectionism, 
to like addictions, eating disorders. There's a wide range of survival habits. Um, trying to think the list is, <laughs> is really long. Emotional flashbacks. A lot of these symptoms are really hard to identify, like I said, because um, often survivors have lived with these for so long, they just feel like what life is, like what the norm is. Um, sometimes it takes, right, like what I would maybe describe as like hitting a bottom, kind of hitting like a rock bottom to say like, maybe there is something going on or I'm really suffering. Um, but it can be hard actually to identify these symptoms um, just because they feel like this is just all like what I've experienced most of my life, like the emotional dysregulation, the dissociation, the flashbacks, the interpersonal difficulties, the shame, like that can just feel like the norm for a lot of complex trauma survivors. Um, with all of the symptoms or the norm that is associated with, with trauma and um, complex trauma, how can someone lose their identity? Yeah, I think this speaks to kind of like the, that, that feeling of like complex trauma has no beginning, middle, or end. So like um, one of the ways we could describe complex trauma is developmental trauma. So when I'm like when someone's growing up, if they're growing up in a safe enough um, environment, right, that supports their curiosity and exploration, then I can get to know myself, right? I can get to know what I like and I don't like, what I want, what I don't want. Um, but there's space, right? There's enough safety for me to explore myself, even if that, what I'm discovering is different from maybe like my family or my community, that still would be supported. And so then I'm able to form an identity out of, out of like uh, sincere and genuine exploration and authenticity. If I grow up in an environment where um, that isn't supported or I'm experiencing um, abuse or neglect, what, what I'm organizing myself around is survival and often shame. Like I'm having to cut off parts of myself in order to adapt and survive the environment or the relationships in, in which I'm in. I think a common one would be that most survivors feel cut off from is their emotions. So they don't get to explore or get to know their emotional world because that's not supported by the relationships or the environment. And so they end up cutting off that part of themselves. Um, and so that doesn't maybe, right, become the way they, like they don't identify with those emotions. Often as people get into complex trauma recovery and maybe they start to discover the ways they've adapted to their, their experiences growing up. So they might discover um, that they're people pleasers or they're perfectionists or they procrastinate or um, they isolate, like whatever it is that they're using to cope, that's become such an important part of their life that 
what feels like who they are. So there can be this question of like, you know, is the, is, is, is the trauma my identity? I've built so much of my life around coping and around um, surviving that even sometimes my identity feels like survival-based rather than like curiosity-based. Um, yeah, so it can be really, I don't know, I, I guess it could be really disorienting and jarring to start to, to understand maybe how deeply woven our survival habits um, feel inside of us. And that can be experienced as like, I don't know, I don't know who I really am because I never had an opportunity to explore that. Who I was wasn't important as surviving what was happening. Wow. That, I think that right there, what you just said was um probably spot on because i think we get so lost in surviving sometimes or just managing or coping that that becomes our identity right so yeah for you to for you to say that i i think that is what a lot of us can identify with and how we can lose our identity and it may be a light bulb moment well wow if if this is who I've had to become, then who really am I? You know, what is my identity? Yeah, it is. I think it can be, it can be a really overwhelming part of the recovery process, right? Like I think I experienced this myself and I hear this from survivors often when they're in the beginning of recovery and they're trying to ask themselves the questions like, what are my needs? Or like, what are my feelings? Or like, what do I want? Or what do I like? And those all can feel like, I don't know, right? Like really hard questions to answer um, because there was never a, a safe enough space to explore those, right? Those got pushed away um, because, right, survival was what was important. Wow, that, that is a big one too. I remember the first time um, my therapist asked me, what do you want? And it felt like I was standing on stage in front of a hundred people with a spotlight on me because I don't think I had ever really thought about it because I was so programmed to just do, 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 and give, give, give that that thought having to, to sit with that was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Yeah. I, I can't, I still remember it. And I was just like, wow. It, it felt like an attack almost because yeah. I, I had never had to worry about that because self-care just wasn't really, or, or true self-care, right? Cause there's coping and, you know, you may sit down and watch TV as a way to relax or something, but that that's not necessarily self-care, you know, that's yeah. just doing something to, because you're tired, but being tired and healing or, or being tired and, and sitting down, and realizing that you've been coping and trying to now heal are two different things I feel so yeah right like I I take the perspective on a lot of like coping skills and and, and the ways we adapt as like serving a really important purpose like we needed those coping skills to get through um what it is we experienced 
typically in our like adult lives, we might start to experience those adaptive strategies as like obstacles or like things that are getting in the way of what we really want for ourselves. Um, but it's hard to put them down, right? And pick up something new, um, maybe because of what you described, you know, in regards to receiving that question is like, it's, it's confronting, it's, it can feel like a lot, right? Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, if you've had to orient yourself to survival most of your life, the idea of stepping out of that can feel really dangerous. Like, I'm not allowed. And if I do step out of it, we might end, like feel like something bad will happen if I do that. Wow, that, that was a, a wonderful explanation of, of how stepping out of uh, survival mode can feel because it is spot on, super spot yeah. on. Yeah. I like to just normalize that because I think like survivors, including myself, get into healing and we're like so frustrated that we just can't like <laughs> do the things our therapist is telling us or like pick up these healing tools or skills or practice self-care. Like, why is it so hard? And, and often it feels really threatening to our nervous system. It's like a feeling that if I put down my survival habits, yeah, like terrible things are going to, are going to happen. So like being really gentle with ourselves as we try new things and like teach our bodies and our brains, like it's safe now to try new things because it wasn't safe to do those things before. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think our culture is, um, you know, so wrapped around just hustling and you, you gotta, mm -hmm. you know, but I've heard before sleep is for, you know, the dead and things like that, but that's so backwards. It, it teaches us to be in survival mode and to be comfortable. There. Yeah. Like uh, there, there are like some survival habits that receive a lot of approval and praise in our culture. Right. So like, um, we're rewarded <laughs> for living in survival in some cases, right? Other survival habits are disapproved of, but there are like a collection where it's like, we're getting the, maybe a message that like, um, oh, you're doing so well. And yeah, on the inside, we might feel like we're like hanging on by a thread. Mm -hmm. So true. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we may start to feel when um, we're coming out of survival mode or when we're learning about um, a lot of our traits that have been coping mechanisms is shame, right? So what is toxic shame and, and how can it be associated with, with trauma? Yeah, I, I really like this question. Um, I just learned something recently about shame in a training I took that really shifted the way that I thought about it. Um, I think shame is something we feel, like it's something we experience. Um, I, I often describe it as like, um, like I am wrong or there's like people maybe the words that kind of float around in this space are like, I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. If somebody really knew me, then they wouldn't want to stay. Mm -hmm. um, 
just the feeling of like, I am wrong, I'm a burden, right? That tends to be um, a place for me, I lived, I feel like I lived there every day, right? Like shame, I used to say like, shame was like my home base. That's just like where I lived most of my life. Um, and what I came to understand recently is that if we go back to that idea that I'm growing up in an environment where certain parts of myself are not accepted or they're not safe enough to express and I need to cut, you know, cut those parts off or push those parts away, how do I do that? And shame is the mechanism. So I shame myself. I shame those parts away from me so I can kind of cut them off and, and keep them over there. In its own way, shame is this kind of adaptive, protective response because those parts of ourselves, they can't survive in the environments that we're in. And that often includes like, um, emotional and relational needs, feelings in general, anything that's not acceptable, like culturally or socially in our, you know, communities. So in order to adapt and to kind of accommodate and, and, and maintain our attachments, we have to cut these things off. Shame is how we do that, right? It's like this kind of automatic process. Um, that keeps me separated from it, from the stuff inside of me that feels like I can't connect with because it's threatening to my current environment or the people, you know, my, my attachment that becomes really well worn, right. Um, chronic and habitual to the point where like shame is home base. This is all that I know. I've been using shame for so long to, to stay disconnected from parts of myself. This is my norm. Um, and so I think for complex trauma survivors, um, like shame is at the kind of core of what we experience. And um, it is the mechanism that keeps us disconnected from what we need to in order to survive that could be, you know, disconnected from our bodies, disconnected from relationships, disconnected from our environment, disconnected from our feelings. Um, but, but it can have, it can, it can show up so early in our lives that we think like, this is just who I am. Like I've always had this voice inside of me that's, you know, incredibly harsh or I've always felt like there's something wrong with me. Right. That's maybe the the feeling of complex trauma has no feels like there's no beginning, like there's no before the trauma. Like I am shame and shame is me. This is just what I've lived with for so long. Well, I think that when you break it down like that and you show that there are parts of us that we had to let go of and that shame was the reason we can start to identify what those parts are when they started. And then we can also identify the shame and we can start to heal it. Yeah. What's tricky about it, right. Is often when we start to heal and we're trying to connect to those things again. Right. So like the question of like, what are you feeling? What do you want? Um, what are your needs? 
what we might notice that is like as we try to connect to what we've disconnected from shame gets louder right again because connecting to those parts of ourselves feels dangerous historically it has not been safe to do that so even as we enter healing and we're like okay i'm trying to connect to like my needs and my emotions and my body initially that's going to feel really dangerous so that shame that critic can get even louder in healing because it's like trying so hard to keep us disconnected from that stuff because it feels dangerous to connect to it and so it's like this conundrum of like getting into healing and feeling like shame gets bigger and louder right as we're trying to connect to what we what we need to connect to heal but shame keeps trying to drag us out, right? Like, and, and that's where it's protective. Um, but also, right, like in our current, like if, as we're healing, it's like, you know, shame doesn't really work for me like it used to. It's trying to disconnect me from parts that I do need to connect to. But I want to normalize that, like, if you're in a healing, like if you're out there healing and you're like, why is my critic so loud? <laughs> Or why is like, why does shame feel like it's getting bigger? It's because as we approach what we've, what we've disconnected from, that's scary. That's dangerous, right? Or it was. So shame might be trying to pull us away. And we just need to keep having experiences where when we disc or when we connect to these things again, we realize we're safe. Like, right. We're, we're okay to do that now. Um, but boy, is it a messy process, right? Like, it's a rough process to do that. Mm-hmm. Something we were talking about um, before we started recording was normalize. We've, we've normalized so many things, right? And for a lot of us, we didn't realize that we may have been in a dysfunctional family system, right? And and not to place any guilt or shame on anybody. It just, it may have been what it was, right? What are some roles that could be seen in a dysfunctional family system? Yeah. So like if we, if we look at like maybe the ways that we cope just like on our own. So it's like, I have a part of me that people pleases. I have a part of me that's a perfectionist. I have a part of me that likes to run away and hide. That happens on a relational level too. Right. So if we look at the family, there might be the person who's like the perfectionist in the family. There might be the person that um, likes to run away and isolate. There might be the person that takes all the blame. Right. So like even as we kind of do that within ourselves, we also do that relationally. If a family is kind of the working unit. Right. Like what are the roles that the family members have to play to survive? right? What's, what's happening. Um, and those roles can be all sorts of things. Sometimes the typical ones that are talked about are like the hero, which tends to be like the people pleasing perfectionist, like trying to save the family and get it all right. High achiever, right? Like, um, I just want it to, I want to look like we're doing okay. Right. Um, there can be um, like a lost child who is um, maybe really quiet, 
keeps to themselves, isolates, doesn't engage, minimizes conflict, minimizes their needs. Um, sometimes there's like, like uh, a person that plays the role of like the humor, like they try to lighten things up, like they diffuse conflict with humor, they move away from what feels distressing, right? They're trying to move away from like anything that's like an argument or a confrontation. Um, scapegoats, so like members of the family who um, like they tend, they like are blamed for the problems. They're what's wrong with the family. Um, it's like a focus on their behaviors rather than like what's happening in the family. And typically, um, members of the family who are looking to heal or break cycles end up being scapegoats for the family, right? So like as a family, I like to think about this like as a, um, I heard this once described as like those mobiles that can hang over the cribs for babies and they all have those like dangling moving parts, mm -hmm. um, right? And so like each of those parts is kind of like moving to keep the family going and if somebody steps out of their role like the whole thing goes like lopsided it's like oh it's thrown the whole system like off balance and so the family often like tries to regroup that person might be scapegoated and they kind of like circle the wagons and try to um bring those coping those, those coping skills back online right these kind of survival habits um it's super challenging right to um step out of those roles and and try to do it differently and and one of the reasons is because like this isn't something families are doing like consciously and intentionally like they're just doing it it's just what they've done right to to survive there's not a lot of awareness. Um, and I usually like to think of these roles as like what families are doing to manage their pain, right? When they don't know how to um, process it and integrate it. So just like we do as individuals, you know, families, relationships are out there. Um, picking up different survival habits to manage the pain that their family has been through when they don't have other ways, maybe like um, more healthy ways that help them actually kind of process it and move through it. They're just trying to stay above it, right? Or stay out of it. I love the way you describe that because like you said, it may not even be something that's consciously happening. It's just what has been happening. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when someone has, you know, that awareness where they see, hey, this is this is not good or this is toxic or, you know, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Now, the whole the whole family is thrown off. So it's not that the behavior is being seen as a problem. It's you're not playing your role anymore. And that's yeah. the problem. Wow. Yeah. These right. Like we could we could keep expanding this out layer by layer and this is where we get into like generational trauma right where like the survival habits of different generations are just being passed down again and again and again again not out of like some 
like malicious intent, right? But just like, this is what we did to survive. And that's modeled for the next generation and the next generation. Um, right. And so like a lot of the times, you know, families are coping this way because they don't, they don't have access to other types of resources and support. Um, sometimes resources and support are like have stigmas, like they don't feel like that's not what we do, right? Therapy is for the weak, like we don't have problems. So there can be like stigmas they're up against. There can be lack of access, um, right? Like lack of funds, like there's just a lot, right? That can make um, stepping out of these generational survival skills really difficult. Um, and when maybe you are the person that starts to see it differently and you're like, I wanna do this differently, it's disruptive just in like, like we've been talking about, this feels just like the norm. This is just how we do it. I'm not even aware that there's another way to do it, right? Like this is just how we've always done it. Um, and so when somebody in the family starts to maybe try to do it differently, they're also maybe trying to address the harm and the pain that's been passed down for so long and, and that's just hard. Like, it's hard to confront the harm and the pain that's happening, right? Like, there's a reason why we're surviving. Because <laughs> feeling that stuff is hard. It's really painful. So true. So true. Okay, so let's say uh, we'll refer to them as the cycle breaker, right? Let's say the person mm -hmm. who no longer wants the dysfunction, um, they're they're talking to someone, they're maybe in counseling or with a therapist, and they want better for the family. But also, those family members or, you know, the people that they're trying to bring along with them haven't done the same work, right? So now you have to get to a point where you say, okay, they may not be in the same position as me. So what does it mean to meet someone where they are? Yeah, this one, <laughs> I I think it's tricky, right? Because often, <clears throat> like, we, we want to be somewhere other than where we are, or we want to be somewhere other, we want someone else to be other than where they are. And I think a good example, or maybe the, a, a relatable example is what we encounter in our, in our, our day to day lives, like if somebody is sitting across from us, and they're in pain, they're sad, or they're grieving, or they're frustrated or they're angry, like we might feel this like compelled to get them somewhere else. Like I'm trying to cheer them up or I'm trying to make them feel better or I'm trying to get them to see this this way or I want them to heal or right. Like we just want them to be anywhere other than where they are right in that very moment. And we do lots of things to to get them out. Typically, if, if you're on the receiving end of this, <laughs> and I think we all are, where we're struggling or like we don't understand or we're hurting or we're in pain, often what we want most is for somebody to just be with us, to just like see it, hear it, try to understand it, not try to fix it, just like be here, right, with us. Um, 
So like when we're trying to meet someone where they're at, it's like trying to, um, that doesn't mean we give up on change, but it's saying like where you are today is painful or it's sad or it's grieving or it's angry or it's I don't get this or confusion and, and I'm just going to be here with you right where you are. That sounds like a really simple thing to do, but it's maybe one of the most difficult <laughs> things to do um, relationally with both others and ourselves um, because we're we're invited to just sit in the discomfort, to just sit in maybe uncertainty or not knowing or lack of control, right? Or just everything that, we're often running from, right? Like when we talk about all these survival habits that we form, we're, we often pick those up because the pain is too much. Yeah. Like it's so uncomfortable, it's so hurtful, it's so harmful. Um, we're looking for ways to get out of that, right? To not be in it. Um, and so when we're meeting someone exactly where they are without trying to get them somewhere else, it's just being, staying present. Like, I'm just here with you in whatever that looks like. And that might feel deeply uncomfortable for me, but there's something really healing about just my presence and like my ability just to be here with you and just validate what you're experiencing without having to change it. Or fix it. Well, that that makes it's a lot of really sense. Really hard. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is. It is. I yeah. I know so for like, me. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, sir. No, you go ahead. Okay, I was gonna say I know for me, like when I started therapy, right? I'm like, wow, this is great. Like, I don't have to live like this anymore. I I don't have to, you know, have all these coping mechanisms. I can be present with myself. I can feel my feelings, like. I wanted everybody to be on that same journey with me. Right. So I was looking from a perspective and a place of a little bit more advancement from the work that I had done and expecting everyone to understand it and comprehend it on the same level as me without having done the work that I had done. And just because they didn't do the work didn't mean that they, you know, I was better than them or they, you know, were this or they were that. It just meant they were where they were. And I was where I was. So I couldn't expect more from somebody or want more from somebody than what they wanted for themselves or for them to be somewhere that they hadn't done the work to be. Right. So then I would just have to say, OK, I have to understand that I'm where I am and they are where they are. And that doesn't mean that um, I have to look at them differently. It just means maybe now I have to have more grace or compassion on them for them and show them how to do better and how they can be better if they want it. And if they don't want it, I still have to accept them for who they are. Yeah, this is super. I think especially in that context of like being a cycle breaker and, and family, right? I think how human is that to say like, I want I want the people I care most about to, to come along with me. Right. Yeah, of course. Right. Like, of course we want that. And, and so it's like that, that desire to, to bring them along 
to get them where we are, to see it the way we see it, right? I think it's like, because we want the people we care about most to be on the journey with us. Yeah, of course. Um, but maybe the reality is they're not ready for the journey. They don't want to go on that journey. Like there can be a lot of reasons or right. That are both like conscious and unconscious about why or why not they're, they're doing what they're doing. And, and maybe what I heard you speak to that kind of resonates with me is like inside of that, we can maintain both our compassion for them and our boundaries. Like, we can we can look at them and say like I'm not better or worse. Um, in fact, maybe as I heal, I get why it's so hard <laughs> to step out of that stuff, right? So our our compassion might build. It's like, yeah, I could see why this would be really tough for them. So I can hold them compassionately, but I might also need boundaries. Like there are certain things I can't participate in anymore. There are certain um, things I have to say no to now. And I think sometimes maybe we grow up culturally feeling like if I'm holding compassion for somebody, that means I'll tolerate everything that they throw and throw at me. Or if I'm holding them accountable, I have no compassion for them. <laughs> right? Like I have to villainize them to hold them like uh, accountable. And there's this maybe really tense middle ground of like, I get that and I can totally hold compassion for you right now. And that behavior is not okay. Or I can't participate in that anymore. Or I'm going to have to say no. And that's there's tension there, right? To be able yeah. to hold both of those things, especially with family when we're healing, right? Like our families are the receivers right of generational survival habits just like us and they may or may not be in the healing process how do i hold them compassionately and how do i hold my boundaries when i'm healing and i think that's maybe really tough relational work right to be able to hold both like um and and often i think it's like the strength of our boundaries is how we stay compassionate with others. Like when we feel like we're taking steps um, to honor our own safety, we, whether that's from a distance or not from a distance, like we tend to be able to say like, yeah, I get why this is hard. Like this is hard. Healing is hard, mm -hmm. it's hard to step out. And especially like you mentioned, because things have been, um, done a certain way for so long when you now start to say, well, I don't, I can still have grace for you. I can still care for you and love you, but I don't want to participate anymore. Oof, you are now yeah. the villain. And that <laughs> is so hard. Yeah. It's so hard to be able to sit with that, right? To know that I am no longer going to participate but when I say that I'm not going to do it, it's going to make me out to be the bad person. And everyone is going to look at me like I'm the one doing something wrong. That is tough. Yeah. Yeah. I think a common experience for, right, like for survivors who are healing is, is, is being scapegoated within families. Often healing for 
survival-based families feels like betrayal. Mm. Like you betrayed us by going out and, and doing something differently, speaking to the harm or like vocalizing things that we've never vocalized before, right? Um, I don't know, I, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for both like survivors and, and their families. Like, um, I, I, I look at my family and I, and I hold a deep amount of compassion for like what's been passed down through my family. Um, and it, it's a lot, right? Like it, it's a lot. And I can see how me stepping out of it would feel threatening and dangerous and like betrayal for them. Um, and at the same time, it was something like I needed to do. Like, I, for whatever reason, <laughs> I was seeing something different, right? And, 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 I, and I decided to, to do that. And at the same time, right, like, I think, um, you know, as I, as I learned about generational trauma, and I think maybe sometimes we want to find someone to blame, like, we want to pin trauma down on this one person or this one thing. And in my experience, at least, right, like if I start to peel it back and go like parents, grandparents, great, like going to keep going, there's not really any way to pin it down, right? Like it's big. Um, that's why maybe it feels really hard to hold that healing space, right, is like we're sad, we're angry, we're processing, we're frustrated and like where do we put it all if we can't just blame it on one person, right? Like, um, I think that's maybe the really devastating impacts of generational trauma is just like, this thing's a beast. Like, it's so big. Mm -hmm. So big. So true. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Okay, so question for you, right? Let's say for someone who listens to this episode and they say, all right, this was all I needed to hear. Um, I'm going to be the one to break the cycle. I'm going to start getting healthy emotionally. I want to, I want to start my healing journey. What using your platform, what advice would you give to someone who maybe is ready, but has been on the fence, um, about talking to someone, um, about doing or taking the necessary steps, baby steps at best, um, just to start their journey. I, I really like how maybe you just threw out the word like baby steps, right? Like um, often, like, especially in my like uh, mentorship program, like we, we often are like, how will I ever do? And then somebody will say something and, and we'll say, well, that's maybe a step like 125. Like, let's scale it back. Like, what's step one? Because step one, two, three, four, like, that's what gets you to step 125. But, like, what is step one? What does step one look like right now in the present moment? Maybe it feels like, um, how will I ever talk to a therapist? How will I ever say this stuff? How will I ever feel what I'm going to feel? How will I ever do this with my family, right? Like, those might all be steps like 500, 1000. It's like, 
what is step one for you? Is it scheduling your first appointment? Is it just acknowledging that you need help? Even if you don't ask for it yet, just like, I do need help. That's step one for me. It's just like acknowledging it. So finding like what your step one is, like present moment, manageable baby step I can take today. Um, knowing that like each of those steps kind of will, will prepare you for the next step. Right. Um, but I think it's really human to, we like say like, I want to start this healing process and our brain just go like, <laughs> like out into the future, like all these things we think we're going to have to do. And then it becomes so overwhelming that we can't even take that first step. So in program, we kind of like rein it in. It's like, okay, if that were step 200, then what would step one be right now to, to just, you know, get yourself there. And then I would also like to just maybe validate and normalize that like step one, whatever it is for you, um, might be really uncomfortable, right? Like feeling is uncomfortable. And I think sometimes maybe the, the shame inside of us says it should be easy and we should be able to do it. And like, we shouldn't struggle, we shouldn't have any doubts, we um, should be completely confident, we should know exactly what we <laughs> want, right? And it's like, no, like this, you know, um, the first time I ever talked about um, my family, just like in general to like a, a health, like a healing professional, it was the most uncomfortable <laughs> I'd ever, like I felt just like I was like airing dirty laundry. Like I was betraying my family, right? By like talking about stuff. So yeah, like it's maybe it's just honoring that like it it is going to be uncomfortable. One of my favorite authors, she kind of talks about like choosing our hard. Like it's hard to be living in survival. Like it, that takes a toll. There's a certain amount of pain in that. And it's hard to heal. Like it's it's uncomfortable. It, it challenges us. And maybe what we're trying to do is find this pain-free solution. But really, what we're trying to choose is our hard. Like it's hard to stay where I am. It's hard to change too. But if I could just recognize that, like in either scenario, I'm going to be I'm going to be challenged. I'm going to experience discomfort I'm going to struggle but I can learn to support myself through that then it's like okay even this first tiny step I'm taking boy it's going to be yeah that one's going to be hard but but maybe it is a step I could take right like a micro step just like I'm just going to get myself to that office, right? Like that first appointment, like that's it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know like what's going to happen after that. But like, I'm just getting myself to like the first appointment or I'm, I'm, or I, or I'm just going to start to entertain that idea, like that I could, could reach out for help. Right. Um, yeah. So really breaking it down into what feels, <clears throat> what feels manageable, right? Like what feels doable 
And if you're, if you're saying I can't do that yet, you probably need to break it down even further, right? Into something smaller. Yeah. I like choosing your hard, right? Because something may be hard right now and you choose not to do it, but in choosing that hard, you're allowing another hard to keep going on and 10 years from now, it may be impossible. So you, you have to look at it from that perspective. So I like the way you use that illustration. That was really good. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, I've heard a phrase. It's like when, when, when the pain we're in becomes bigger than the pain of changing, then we might start to consider changing. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're, the survival in its own way is painful. And and honestly, I look at my own life and, and, and survivor's life, like we're good at tolerating pain. We get really, really good at that. Right. Um, so sometimes it can take a lot for us to, to entertain, you know, like, could I change? Like that feels, that feels tough. Um, maybe they're just different kinds of pain, right? Like the survival pain is is different than healing pain. Um and and maybe where when we're in survival pain we feel kind of stuck. Healing pain might help us um go where we'd like to go, right? Like it would take us where we where we where we'd like to be. Um but yeah I I, I think like I hear from survivors a lot and I've felt this myself is like, when does it get better? Right? Like just want to feel better. Um, yeah, I get that onto such a deep level. It's like this stuff is really painful and, and you, you get into healing, hoping you're going to feel better. And I think, I think at least I do, I do feel better. Um, but I did have to walk myself through a certain kind of pain to get there, right? Like I had to maybe learn how to, I maybe had to learn how to walk through the pain rather than push the pain away and just survive. Um, so it, yeah, I think it, it, maybe that's where I just hold so much compassion for people who aren't like when we, when they're just like not ready to heal, it's like, yeah, cause it's hard, <laughs> hard, hard stuff. So yeah, little micro steps and and maybe just saying like it's okay that it's hard. Like there's nothing wrong with me that it feels this hard. Like it's hard because it's hard, not because there's something wrong with me. And we may have gotten so accustomed to the pain um of being in survival mode that when we think about and have to sit in the pain of healing we're not used to it. So it may not be that it hurts more. It may be that we're just used to one. So yeah. if you look at it like that too, that could also be a way of getting us, you know, to take those steps that we need to baby steps or micro steps. Yeah. That's such a compassionate way of, of seeing it. Right. Like, uh, yeah, a lot of what we're, we're living with when we're living with complex trauma, whether that's the survival habits, the the day-to-day suffering like that yeah that's the norm this is what we're familiar with and and even if 
what's familiar is painful, it still feels familiar. It feels a little safer than the unknown, right? Um, this is a pain I know. This is a pain I, I've dealt with before. I've survived. I like I know this, <laughs> right? Okay. Where, um, yeah, healing pain is is different. Like it's unfamiliar. It's unknown. It's uncertain. I don't know how to swim in these waters, right? Um, and 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 sometimes we say like we we survive the trauma. Sometimes it feels like we're trying to survive the healing. Because it's this, yeah, a place where it's like, this is a lot, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I, I've kind of like seen it as like, I've, I've learned how like a totally new way of living, of relating to like myself and other people, um, rewriting that inside of me. It's hard. It's a lot, right? To like, um, really really shift almost your entire way <laughs> of living into something new like complex trauma is so pervasive and that it seems to right like um reach into like family career friendships um the past the present like it just right feels like it kind of infiltrates everything when we're healing it sometimes can feel like we're turning our life inside out right to like do, to do it to do something differently um and and we don't even know what that is yet <laughs> we don't even know what that looks like um yeah i think my the word i use so frequently on my platform is just gentleness staying so gentle with ourselves through the process um because yeah like it, it's understandably um, yeah, just really difficult. I think that you've given um, a lot of good advice. I think that the the way in which you've you know laid the groundwork and um, built a bridge for those who who may not have known what they're dealing with um, has been really good. And I think that the information you provided was was really helpful too. So so thank you for that. Thank you for you know, what you've had to do to get here, to be able to have a voice, to have a platform, all the things. Thank you. You as well, right? Like, I think like we were talking earlier, um, like you're doing the work and you're using your voice and like collectively, I have to remind myself of this a lot because right where trauma is so big, like there's, we're collectively healing too, hopefully, right? Like finding ways to, amplify each other's voices and stories. So true. If someone wanted to find you online or on social media, where can they find you at? So my uh, Instagram platform is at breaking down CPTSD um, on that platform. So that's where I offer um, my, the majority of my free content. Um, I also have a subscription on Breaking Down CPTSD, which allows for more like um, FaceTime through live. So I give maybe a little bit deeper level of just education and instruction through that, that offering. 
Um, the other place that you can find my work is on my website at sarahair.com. Um, so there I have some free uh, self-paced workshops. I have a survivor shop where I've um, written different workbooks, try to making some of this content digestible. And I'm a huge, like, like I love practical tools. Like I'm always like, what could I like, give me one thing I can do in my daily life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So a lot of those workbooks are based on like, here's something that you might start to practice in your daily life from a parts work perspective or a somatic perspective. Um, and then you can find uh, stuff like my story. And then I also have a mentorship program that I run through there. Um, but those are kind of the two big platforms, my website, um, sarahair.com and then breaking down CPTSD on Instagram. Nice. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for this, for the work that you've done, um, for who you are, how you do it and everything that you shared today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And again, appreciate what you're doing with the, the podcast and the voice you are in our healing community as well. Thank you so much for that, Sarah.